Welcome to Leave Your Mark, where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page at Scott G. Langston. My goal is to create a community of people who take every opportunity to live high-performing lives. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning is a method and language of integrated practice. It brings the worlds of therapy and conditioning together and helps them become more powerful and more practical. If you live in one or both of these worlds or you use the services of a therapist or conditioning coach, you know that sometimes they don't see eye to eye. They aren't on the same page. Reconditioning provides a time-tested process for aligning these two worlds and creating impactful solutions to performance problems. Follow them at ReconditioningHQ on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or become a member of their Facebook group, Reconditioning HQ Revolution, and join the Reconditioning Revolution. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston, and today I have the privilege of speaking with Greg Rose. Greg is a doctor of chiropractic and holds an engineering degree from the University of Maryland. Greg specializes in assessing and treating athletes, three-dimensional biomechanics, strength and conditioning, manual therapy, and rehabilitation and therapeutic exercise. Combining an engineering background with an expertise on human body, Greg helped pioneer the field of analyzing three-dimensional motion capture models of the golf swing. For the past 23 years, Greg has helped thousands of athletes of all skill levels reach peak athletic performance. His cutting-edge yet research-based form of functional training combined with golf-specific motor learning drills have made Greg one of golf's top strength and conditioning professionals. Greg is also a partner in functional movement systems and helped develop the Selective Functional Movement Assessment, a revolutionary movement assessment that helps identify altered motor control and guides medical practitioners on how to treat patients more efficiently. Greg founded OnBase University and Racket Fit, which teach baseball, softball professionals, and tennis professionals, respectively, how to improve their overall skills by enhancing their physical performance. Greg speaks and educates worldwide, sharing his many years of professional practice and is widely regarded as an expert in golf, health, and fitness. He has lectured in over 24 countries and has been featured in many golf and news publications. Greg and his family live in San Diego, and I'm honored to have Greg here today, so welcome, Greg. Hey, thanks for having me, Scott. Appreciate it. So just before we got on and uh, to tell the listeners, um, you know, you're, we're a little late doing this today and your excuse was that you had to dig a tractor out of a mud pit that you had stuck it in. So maybe you want to tell everybody why you have a tractor and what, what you're doing in the mud with the tractor. I said, if you had a dollar every time you heard that excuse, right? (laughs) I actually, I live in San Diego, but uh, my wife is from Little Rock, Arkansas, and we have a 24 acre property in Arkansas with a river that goes through it. And we have everybody out here uh, in Arkansas for the 4th of July. And I have a tractor with a little bush hog and I was clearing out some land where we're going to shoot our fireworks. And my tractor decided to go down instead of forward and it (laughs) sunk into the mud. That was my morning. Beautiful. <laughs> are you farming on this land or are you just, it's basically just land well, that you would... I am a fanatic gardener. Yes. So I have a, a great garden in San Diego where I grow most of the food I eat. And I just planted 90 fruit trees here in Arkansas at our property. And I'm building an entire big vegetable garden. I have some of my wife's family lives here on the property, but uh, we are definitely going to be farming here. That's awesome. Self-consumption, yeah. That's beautiful. Take me back for a second to, and the listener back to uh, where it all started for you. You grew up where, and what did you really dream of being when you were a little boy? When I was a little boy, um, I think I was like most little boys. I probably wanted to be like a fireman and an astronaut or something like that. But, uh, (laughs) um, you know, I I think... uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to be when I was little. So I think I was exploring with everything. I would say you never know what you're going to be when you grow up. So hopefully you just never grow up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, uh, I grew up in the Bethesda, Maryland, right outside of Washington. Born in Los Angeles. And uh, when I was two years old, my family moved to the East Coast. And so pretty much I spent most of my life in Maryland. And then uh, I went to University of Maryland College. And then I went to chiropractic school in Iowa came back and set up my first practice in Maryland. And after nine years, I then moved to San Diego to run the Tiles Performance Institute out there. And I've been in San Diego ever since. That was 2003. 
So let's let's go back for a second. You're in Maryland, and what what are the influences on you from a sports perspective that uh, that enlighten you to obviously an interest in sport? Um, well, and it's pretty funny. So I played I played soccer and volleyball when I was in high school, and when I, I decided to go to engineering school at the University of Maryland, and when I got to the uh, first year freshman there at Maryland, I worked for an engineering company and two days a week. And this engineering company, the, my main supervisor said to me, hey, uh, do you play golf? And I said, no, I don't. And he said, well, we do a lot of work on the golf course. He goes, you know, we have a lot of meetings out there. He goes, that's something you should learn how to do. And the University of Maryland, where I went to school, had its golf course. So I always tell the story that, you know, one of two things happens if you ever go try to play golf. Some people either get addicted or they never want to play again. It's, there's no in the middle, right? And uh, you either love it or you hate it. And I fell in love with it. I, I, I sucked, but I was like, man, this is a great game. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, you know, I started playing a lot. And I always say your handicap and your GPA do the same thing, right? The more you play golf, your GPA goes down and so does your handicap. <laughs> I, started, I started rearranging my classes. I was taking classes at night so I could play more golf. And then I realized that I couldn't afford to play golf being a college student. So I worked two days a week at this engineering company. And then I said, you know what, I'm going to go to the driving range and see if I can get a job. And I was actually, I was hired on the spot. I was the guy that drove the tractor around that everybody aims at on the driving range. And I was there for three years, my sophomore, junior, and senior year of Maryland. I progressed from the driving range guy to the starter. And I had lots of great golf professionals there that just saw this young college kid, didn't know what he was doing, gave me a bunch of tips and lessons. I actually became a pretty good, I became a scratch golfer within 18 months, which is easy to do when you play a lot. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then, you know, I, I, uh, I was about to, uh, let's see, exactly, it was my start of my senior year. And I'll never forget, I was a starter out there. And there was these three guys that used to always come. It was on Thursdays. And I always knew they were coming because they were my last tea time. And it was the three guys that you could tell they'd already been drinking. They bringing a case of beer with them in the back of the cart. Seemed like they had a lot of fun. And this one guy, his name was Keith, says to me, he goes, hey, Greg, we see you out here all the time. He goes, you never played with us. We know we're your last tea time. Why don't you join us and be our fourth? And it didn't take a lot to twist my arm. So I jumped in and I, I started playing golf with these guys. And it's kind of funny. Like we just, it was some fun guys I met at the golf course that we played with, but I didn't know anything about them. And after about four five, six rounds, one of the guys, we were walking down the fairway says to me, he goes, so what are you doing? What are you, what are you studying? And I said, Oh, I'm studying engineering. And he's like, why are you doing engineering? And I was like, well, it's kind of my family business. My dad was into land development. And it seemed like the thing to do. And he goes, that's cool. He goes, do you like it? And I was like, uh, not really. And he's like, <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, it's just, you know, there's nothing exciting about it. And he's like, well, what the hell are you doing? Why don't you do something else? And I was like, oh, it's too late. I was like 19 years old, you know. And he's like, what do you mean it's too late? He's like, you're a kid. You can do anything you want. I'm like, but I don't really know what I like. I'm like, what do you guys do? What I didn't know is these three guys were three chiropractors. <laughs> and I always say when you find a young, influential kid that doesn't know what he wants to do, chiropractors do one of two things. They try and turn you into a patient or another chiropractor. <laughs> and the one guy was like, hey, you should come talk out my practice. And I was like, uh, and he finally convinced me to come. And I went to his practice. And I'd never been adjusted, never been a chiropractor. But I just went there to hang out. And I was like, man, this is the coolest thing ever. I'm like, all oh, his patients love them. If they didn't like them, they never come back. I'm like, that's cool. And, and um I, so I started looking into it. And I was like, you know, something about that just excited me. And I decided to, I finished engineering, but I got my minor in pre-med and decided to go to chiropractic school. So I added a mm-hmm. fifth year Maryland, got my minor and went to the Quad Cities or Davenport, Iowa. And uh, this was like culture shock from Washington D.C. to <laughs> going from rush hour, which was like three hours to rush minute in the Quad Cities, which was a little different. Um, <laughs> The worst part about chiropractic school is you were in school during all daylight hours. So it was for a, a golf addict, it killed my golf game, right? So I spent, you know, golf, chiropractic is three and a half years. And the last year is a residency. Like most medical doctors have to go to four years. We have to do one year. And the, the nightmare about chiropractic is a lot of students have a hard time graduating because when you go into your residency, you have to treat a certain number of people or you don't graduate. Mm. I think it's around 300, 350 people. 
well, can you imagine like me walking up to you and going, Hey, I'm a, I'm a chiropractic student. Let me crack your neck. I mean, that, a lot of people don't, don't want to do that. Right. So you have to, and they don't give you patience. You have to go find patience. So you almost have to create like a marketing plan or a business plan. And I think this was the golf addict in me, but I was like, you know what? I remember when I worked at the university of Maryland, everybody I talked to always complained of pain. It was like, you know, my shoulder hurts, my back hurts, my knee hurts, especially if they were playing bad. Right. That was the excuse. So I said, you know what, I'll, here's what I'll do. I'm going to go get my clubs out of the closet. I'm going to go down to the local golf course by myself. They'll pair me up with one, two or three people. I'll go out there. I'll meet some people. One of them will complain of pain and I'll say, Hey, I'm a chiropractor versus golfers and you should come see me. And that was literally the evolution of the business plan. <laughs> um, I'll never forget. I went to, I used to go to this golf course there called Duck Creek Golf Course. Maybe somebody listening knows this course. It was the greatest golf course when I was in school. It was $7 to play and you didn't need to wear your shirt, which was awesome. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> and uh we still, you know i used to go out there all the time and it worked you know it's like all of a sudden i had all these patients all these golfers i started working with the assistant pros and then i didn't even realize it but at that time there was a tournament called the hardy's classic it's now called the john deere classic that comes to the quad cities and at my facility where i was an intern or i was doing my residency is was a pretty famous chiropractic clinic that some of the PGA tour players had been coming into for years. And one of the doctors that used to treat these guys had moved on. And when these professionals came in during the year I was there, uh, this is 1994, 1995, when they came in, they were like, Oh, we've got a guy here just works with golfers. Let me introduce you to Greg. And I actually met a couple of PGA tour players even before I graduated, which was kind of cool. Um, so I, you know, I, I got the, the idea of like, wow, that's a great business. You know, I should, I should, you know, and back then there was nobody, there was no like golf chiropractor, you know, was, you were either a chiropractor. You always laugh. I'm like, well, there's an eye doctor just for the eye. It was probably crazy when he said, I'm just going to go set up an eye doctor and I practice. <laughs> I set up my, my golf practice. Everybody's like, you're crazy. And I'm like, well, listen, I can always go be a regular chiropractor, but if this works like it was in Iowa, it could be huge. So that's really the spark of the, uh, of my business. That's awesome. What's um, two, two, two love uh, connections here. One is the love of golf and the other is the love of, you know, obviously helping people and healing people. What, what do you love about um, golf and what do you love about uh, helping people uh, and healing people? You know, I, I always, I feel like all of my career, even engineering, engineering is like, there's a problem. Like you've got the, uh, build a, this bridge or the structure, but you're going to have a hundred year flood that goes across it, or there's going to be this much snow. Like, how do you prevent this building from collapsing? I feel like medicine is the same thing. You've got this person that comes in with a problem and you're like, you're trying, you're an investigator. You're trying to figure out, you know, who committed the murder here on this person and trying to, it's a mystery. And, and, and the golf swing is the same way. A golfer comes in. It's like, I, I, I don't know what's going on, but I, you know, I keep slicing the ball or I'm, I'm losing 20 yards. And I felt like, that's what it's always driven me is this. I love the detective work, the doing the evaluation. I'm probably best known for diagnostics, which is I always feel like, why guess when you can assess? And I always feel like great practitioners. I'm always trying to mimic people that I respect or try to try to become a better practitioner. And, and in my mind, the best practitioners, they treat the right thing. You know, I don't, it's not about how you treat. I think a million people are great at treating, but when we do second opinions or third opinions or fourth opinions, People come in, I don't say, I can't believe they treat you like that. I always say, I can't believe they're treating that part of your body. That's not the problem. Mm -hmm. So I think it's this discovery, uh, this, this diagnosis, this mystery that you have to solve with every person that walks in. And I've done that my entire career. Okay, quick break here to tell you about reconditioning. Reconditioning is for treatment skills and protocols and training methods and exercises, like an operating system on a smartphone is for applications. Fundamentally, reconditioning brings the worlds of therapy and performance preparation together in one systematic process that makes treatments and training systems more efficient and effective. Level 1 takes you through the fundamental assessment process and gives you a tactical approach to eliminating issues that stand in the way of your client's progress towards quality movement and a healthy and high-performing state. Level 2 goes deep on context, analyzing and understanding variable movement patterns, gaining clarity on key movement attributes, and being exceptionally precise about your interventions and strategies. It then links to the overall preparation program. It becomes deeply considerate of the context of that program and the environments of the preparation. 
Finally, our reconditioning mastery mentorship is a completely virtual experience you can engage in from the comfort of your home. It allows you to benefit from our 50 years of professional practice in a high-quality community of practitioners. This eight-week program walks you through how to apply this powerful operating system in your environment and your circumstances, irons out all the question marks, and ensures you are ready to deliver the most effective reconditioning practice to your clients. Head over to reconditioninghq.com to see when our next courses are being held and when our next mastery mentorship is starting. Become a reconditioning specialist and join the reconditioning revolution. Okay, we're back. You know, you have a, a, a relatively good uh, and clear connection to the influence factors in and and how the body uh, areas of the body can influence and change movement and movement quality. That has not always been the way people looked at things, and you've been one of the innovators in that world. What do you sort of look back on in terms of the influences of you educationally or? Was was it the engineering degree yeah, or I'll was it, you know, that you, allowed so, you to see it differently? So I'll tell you. So obviously the influence is like Gray Cook. I met Gray when the Gray started first year I started too, 1996. And he was in Virginia. I was in Maryland. So we've been friends for a long time. But I'll never forget, you know, uh, there's a guy by the name of Dr. Liam Hennessy. He's from Ireland. And I always feel like if you want to be successful in business, you should surround yourself with people who are way smarter than you. And that's something I've done really well is create some advisory boards that have been so helpful for me. And we were having a meeting of the medical minds at TPI one time in California. And this Dr. Liam Hennessy was there. And I said to the team, I said, hey, I want to come up with a better diagnostic to really try and prevent pain and injury before it starts. I'm like, everybody, you know, we're a sickness healthcare, not a health healthcare, and I want to try and prevent it. And this guy, Dr. Liam Hennessy, says to me and to the group, and he's like, well, if you, wanna, if you want to really stop, you know, if you want to prevent things from happening, uh, you need to know the mechanism of injury. Like, if we know, if we sit down and write on a piece of paper the most common mechanisms of injuries, well, then we should be able to see what steps we can make to prevent those. And he said, Greg, I believe that there are three just buckets of things that can actually hurt people. And he goes, he, 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 he explained to me, he said, all right, he goes, let me give you an example. Uh, let's take a, uh, a rugby player. Okay. Let's say a rugby player is running down the sidelines and somebody tackles him. Now when he tackles him, he tackles him in a way where he hits his knee and he tears his ACL. He goes, okay, the cause of injury is a trauma, a guy tackling you. He goes, that's very common, right? Somebody has an injury. He goes, now he's laying on the ground. He's in pain. The trauma created the pain. Now he gets up and he limps off the field. He alters his motor control and limps off the field. He said, that's the most com- that's, that's one of the most common causes of injury is an actual trauma. And he said, okay, the second possible bucket. He goes, let's say this rugby player, same rugby player, walks out on the field, starts running down the field, and all of a sudden he has insidious onset of pain. Like, I don't know why, but all of a sudden his left knee starts to hurt. He goes, you know, have you ever woken up and all of a sudden your elbow just has some pain? He's like, you know, no, no reason it just has some pain. He goes, now, if you take a professional athlete like this rugby player and they have left knee pain, they're not going to raise their hand and say, coach, take me out. He goes, what are they going to do? He goes, that pain started it. They will alter their motor control and they'll put more weight on their right leg and they'll just walk it off. They'll run it off. He goes, but now because he's putting more weight on his right leg, when he gets tackled, all of a sudden it tears the ACL. He goes, so actually that didn't start with a trauma. It started with pain, which made him alter the motor control, and then it created the injury. That's another source of problems. So we have trauma, insidious onset pain, and he goes, now there's a third one. He goes, the third one is, he goes, imagine like you're a rugby player and you're visiting the United States. You're from Ireland, and you've never been to the United States. You sleep in a hotel bed that you've never been in before, and maybe you eat some food you've never eaten before, and maybe you work out in the gym that you've never worked out before, but the next day you wake up, and you're just not you. You're just moving different. He goes, you know, have you ever woken up on that side of the bed? And you just feel like, he goes, so now when you get on the field, you just start with altered motor control. He goes, this person's running down the field, but they're not running normal. And because they're not running normal, when they get tackled, they put stress on their knee and they tear their ACL and then they're in pain. He goes, so there's really three causes, three mechanisms of injury, trauma, insidious onset pain, or altered motor control. And I said, okay, I agree with you, Liam. I think those are three of the most common causes. He goes, okay, I'm glad you agree. He goes, so now I'm going to ask you a question. He goes, I want to know if you can diagnose these. I go, what do you mean? He goes, all right, 
if, if I told you this was a trauma, he goes like that guy getting tackled. He goes, could you diagnose where the injury occurred? I said, yeah, I think it's pretty easy. I look at the video. I can see how his knee got caught. I can see where it went. And he goes, I agree with you. That's really easy. He goes, how about insidious onset pain? They just wake up in pain. Can you diagnose that? And I said, well, that's a little harder. I go, but you know, we kind of know where the nerves go to. We can trace nerve roots and dermatomes. I go, yeah, I think we could probably figure that out. And he said, I agree with you too. He goes, okay, how about the third one? Let's just say they have altered motor control. They just woke up and they're not moving properly. Can you diagnose that? And that's where we all sat in the room. We said, you know what? Uh, I don't think so. He goes, I agree with you too. He goes, I don't even think we know what normal movement is. He goes, but the problem is, is most of the research out there shows that most of these injuries actually started with altered motor control. And he goes, you know, we're talking about looking at trauma, looking at pain, but we don't even know the probably the number one cause of mechanism of injury is this altered motor control. And it just, to me, it was like this huge light bulb. And I'm like, well, of course. I go, people are just, you don't realize it's these cumulative movement dysfunctions that create most of your trauma. And he goes, and if we're not even looking for that, he goes, you know, we check your blood pressure, we check your pulse, you know, but we don't check your movement. Like that's just, it's just asinine. So kind of funny is, is, you know, there was guys like Gray Cook in the room who developed the functional movement screen. And there's, uh, you know, there's people out there like Shirley Sarman in the physical therapy world. And there's lots of people who've been talking about movement, but there was no entire engulfing system to identify altered motor patterns, especially when there was pain involved. And that was really the birth of the SFMA. When we sat down and I said to Gray, and I was like, he had the, this idea. And I was like, let's, let's take this idea and let's make the, the ultimate altered motor control screen. And, you know, kind of naively, this was like 2004. I was like, with all these great minds, you know, we should be able to do this in about six months. Well, here we are 15, almost 20 years later, and we're still not done. But it's been, a, it's been quite a journey. Mm. When did um, your connection point with this sort of philosophical background connect with this idea that you could bring, as you've done with TPI, you could bring sort of an, a microscope on a particular um, sport like golf and look at the way people moved and then decide that, you know, we're going to look at it way the, from a pro's eyes, from a therapist's eyes, from a conditioning person, yeah. person's eyes, and then we're going to distill down to what are the, 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 the factors that are affecting right. the swing. Well, it's kind of another funny story. It was uh, when I was my, it was the last month at chiropractic school at Palmer College in Iowa, and I was seeing all my patients for the last time and I was uh, getting ready to move back to Washington, D.C. So I was meeting a lot of my patients that I'd worked with saying thanks, and they were saying thanks. And there was a golf pro that I worked with that was a good golf pro in the area, and he came in. And I, I don't know if you've ever had one of these meetings, but I had this, this, this meeting with, where the patient was not – I don't want to say they were pissed off, but they were pretty close. Like he came <laughs> in, and he was like – I was like, hey, his name was John. I'm like, John, hey, good to see you. And he was like, listen, I didn't come here to say goodbye. I came here because there's a problem, and it was like – you better answer this or we're going to fight. I'm like, Whoa, what's going on? I go, cause he had back pain. I was like, I thought your back pain was better. He goes, this has nothing with my back. And he explained to me that there are three types of golf pros. There are golf pros that make money running the club and managing the facilities. He goes, there's golf pros that make money giving lessons. He goes, and then there's golf pros that make money playing golf. And he goes, my primary source of revenue is playing golf. He goes, I play in a lot of the local PGA sections. He goes, and I'm usually pretty good. He goes, but for the last six months, I not only have I not made a dollar, I haven't really made any cuts in the tournaments. And he's like, and I'm going to tell you right now, the only thing I've changed is I let you touch me. I want to know what you did. And I want you to put it back. And I was like, yeah. I, go, I go, Scott, I, I, I got to be honest with you. I go, listen, I haven't even looked at your golf swing. I was just trying to fix your back. You know, I, I have no idea. And he's like, well, you need to figure it out right now because something's changed. And it was honestly, it was one of those things just to be all, all truthful. I just wanted to get out of the room. It was uncomfortable. Right. Wow. And I said to him, I go, I go, listen, John, I go, I have no idea, but let me do some research. I'll get back to you. I feel like a jerk because I've never got back to him. But I went out and this was, you know, 1996. There wasn't as much depth on like Google and search, but I, I always felt like it was important when I treated somebody to get them to exercise and work out because I thought it would help hold the treatment longer. So I typed into early Google search. I said, uh, golf, chiropractic exercise. And a lot of stuff started coming up with golf and exercise back then, saying how if you take somebody, put them in a gym, get them stronger, they lose their flexibility, and all of a sudden now they play worse golf. And I'm like, oh, crap, maybe I did screw this guy up. But I was like, you know, this just doesn't seem right to me. I want to keep studying this. And then what's crazy, I always feel like success 
is because of hard work and timing. And I, I obviously work my butt off, so I love hard work. Uh, I don't even consider what I do work. But timing, <laughs> timing for me, 1996 is when I started my practice. Well, guess who else started in 1996? Tiger Woods started in 1996. You know, and it was just like, when he came out, everyone was like, whoa, that guy's like an So I really, I never want this to happen again. I, I want to I be able to know what I did to that golf pro. And, and if I can influence his body to change his golf swing, well, obviously I did it in a bad way because he got worse. I go, but I, if I can influence, I can do it in a good way or a bad way. And I need to know a lot more about this. So I've taken my engineering background. I was always into any type of science and I started using technology, some early video. We even had early motion capture back then and just started studying everything I could find, listening to great instructors out there, looking at books and just started engulfing everything I could on technique, meeting with golf professionals, asking questions, learning how the body affects the swing. And that's where it created this whole body swing connection. And just over the years, we've kind of put together this, these, these correlations where, Hey, if you can't do this, pretty confident your golf swing is going to do this. And if I can change the way your body works, then a coach can actually change the way you swing. And that's where you see now TPI in our education is this 20 years of experimenting and helping people and making people worse and making people better and figuring out, which is, it's been quite the venture. What's, uh, what has been sort of one of the bigger challenges of being um, ahead of the curve or being an, an innovator oh, yeah. in some sense? Easy, easy here is that, you know, in, back in the day, I'll tell you a great story. Brad Faxon is a good friend who's always been a fanatic uh, workout person on the PGA Tour. Told me when he started, can't remember what year he started, but it was like 1970 something. I, I, somewhere 70 early he said, Chichi Rodriguez walked up to him on a driving range, put his arm around him and said, son, I'm going to give you some advice. And he goes, look over there. And he pointed at the early Health South trailer, which is like the early fitness trailer with PGA Tour. He said, if you want to have a long career, stay out of that trailer. So, <laughs> I mean, so you got, you got to think there's, there's in the day, back in the day, a lot of people thought working out and doing stuff was, was a disadvantage, right? Mm-hmm. So now, obviously, you look on the PGA Tour and they're just incredible athletes out there. The Brooks Keptas, the Dustin Johnsons, the Tiger Woods. But before, when I first started, I had to convince people that you should work out to play better. Now, I don't need to convince them. I just need to convince them that I know what I'm talking about, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So. Talk about that for a second, because you were right in the middle of it. What, what, are, what are some of the factors that changed golf that way? Because obviously it was an old boys club that uh, you, you kind of did it in a certain yeah. way. And then it, it's and really then it Tiger Woods. I mean, it's just, he had total domination and people were looking at him going, what does he do differently? And they're like, they, they've never seen a guy working out in the gym like that. They've never seen someone with that much speed and power. And now distance is just dominating the game. And if, if you take, any, any, any athlete and turn them into a golfer, they have a better chance of success than just a golfer, right? Because mm-hmm. take an athletic golfer that can outdrive you or give you a two, three club difference, you just can't compete with that person. Like another kid that I worked on, Peter Uline, um, he, he, was, he won the U.S. Amateur, and I think when he was 21 years old, but you know, he'd been doing stuff that we've been telling him to do since he was nine years old, so he was an explosive athlete, and when he got to the U.S. Am, the guy he was playing with, I remember said in an interview on the first tee, Peter got there and hit the ball. The other kid hit the ball and Peter hit it almost a hundred yards past him. And the kid looked at his caddy and said, I can't beat this kid. So mentally he already had won, right? So I think players now, they don't want any disadvantages. They can see what these other players can do. I mean, hell, back in 2006, we had 40 players. There was like 42 players that could hit the ball over 170 miles an hour. We now have over 100 players that can hit it over 170 miles an hour. And there's just more speed coming. So I, we don't have to convince them anymore. Now the evidence is right there that being an athlete is a huge advantage. Um, talk about that for a second. I just uh, I actually had two interviews today. One was uh, with David Epstein, who wrote the sports gene and also just re- wrote a neat book called The Range, which I'm reading. It's really quite uh, provocative. And it talks the real subject matter around range is this idea of whether your early specialization is really the way to go or whether you're being a generalist is a, is a better format of, of, of for success in the long term. And I'm kind of curious, having been in a sport like golf and seeing some of these guys, what's your opinion of the, the specialization and the uniqueness right. of the sport versus being sort of a, an athlete, as you said? Yeah. Well, I can tell you, I don't even think it's an opinion anymore. We have so much research on this that uh, 
uh, specializing is really works for maybe three, four percent of the world, right? So if you're if you're like ninety seven percent of the people out there, being a generalist is an advantage, right? So building that, like I said, building the athlete first and then the golfer second, as we call it, instead of just trying to turn the golfer because. I always tell my parents this. I'm like, listen, if you want to win the 12-year-old championships, we can do that. But to do that, I've got to focus heavily on golf skills. And I believe that there's really key windows of trainability out there that as we develop, that if you miss these windows, it's kind of hard to go back in time. And there's a lot of them when you're really young. And if we don't hit those athletic training ones, and I don't think you'll ever have the skills or the power that like Brooks Kepka. So I say, listen, if you want to win the 12 year old championship, we can do that. But now you're massively reducing your chance of winning the masters. Mm. You want to win the masters. We got to not care about who won the 12 year old championships. And it's crazy to me that anybody cares. Like who cares? Does anybody know who won the 11 year old championships? Like it means nothing, but to these parents, they think it, you know, that they, that Tiger was on tour when he was six and they just, they don't get it. Right. Mm-hmm. So part of the problem is the NCAA. Not, not part, a big part of it, because if you want to get a scholarship, well, then you've got to be good early or else coaches won't draft you. Right. Mm-hmm. So as long as that lure there for, you know, financial freedom, but I, I always tell my, you know, if, if you look on the PGA tour, go look at the top 10 in the world, half of them didn't go to college, right? There it, it's, if you're one of the top 1%, you know, uh, I don't see the advantage if you, because there's lots of places to get good competition now, but I, I feel like if you do it right, probably 14, 15 is when you start to specialize. Most of our players from, you know, from Charlie Hoffman to Adam Scott to Brooke, all of them really didn't start focusing solely on golf till around 14, 15 years old. And, you know, I think in Asian culture, this is even worse. You know, we do lots of coaching in Japan and Korea and China, and they work harder than anybody, but they early specialize and they focus on one sport and they do it over and over again. And I even try, I tell my Korean players, I'm like, we should copy who like the the most successful Korean players of all time, we should copy what they did. And if you actually look at the most successful Korean golfers of all time, it's KJ Choi and Y.E. Yang. KJ Choi and Y.E. Yang didn't even start playing golf till they were 15. They never even started playing. KJ was, was a, a a boxer and a power lifter. And then he decided to go into golf and Y.E. Yang was a power lifter. So they were, they were all into something completely different and they didn't really start they didn't even see a driving range until they were 15. And I'm like, why are you having them hit a thousand balls for eight hours a day when you're eight? I go, when the greatest Korean player of all time never even did that. It doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. It's, there's this illusion that if I just focus on one sport um, and just specialize, I'll, I'll become great. But it, it creates burnout. Kids get injured. They lose interest. Um, they, they miss all the physical athletic development part that really helps them be a better player and advance faster when they're older. Now there are some early specialization sports. Like if I said, uh, I want you to go compete in the Olympics in gymnastics or diving, Well, now you got to be young when you do this. So I can't, I can't wait, but the PGA of uh, UK, GB and I, Great Britain, Ireland did a big study on tour players and they found that the average time it takes from when you start training to get on tour, it's about 21 years. So if you take the average player on there, they've been developing for 21 years. It's not four or five years. It's this long development. And along the way, multiple different sports creating that athlete. Mm -hmm. Cool. Is that what David said too? Yeah, it is. It's a, it's a, you know, the idea of generalization and having a, a, a more of an open profile of experience. I mean, he, his, the opening chapter really talks about the difference between Federer and, and Tiger Woods and Woods being more of an anomaly example than, and Federer being more your, your general example of sort of having a wide plethora of experience and a wide sort of, uh, and, but he does talk in the book and I mean, I'm only a few chapters in, but he does talk about there being some unique sports or uh, right. circumstances in, in the world where that specialization does, does that it. That world, that long-term athletic development, LTAD world, uh, one of our advisory board members, Istvan Bali, pretty much kind of pioneered that. And I, I'm a huge believer, and we do all of our junior programs like that. Mm-hmm. How, how, do, how has all of what you've learned um, and you hearken back to your own childhood and then now being a parent, how does that challenge, how has that challenged and also um, supported you, you as a parent and what you do in parenting? My, my poor daughter. 
So, <laughs> <laughs> you mean my guinea pig? Is that what you mean? That's <laughs> <it>. so, I, <laughs> so go so, here. No, go over there. <laughs> yeah, was, you know, I, we we kind of had a rule. I, I definitely took hey, what two or three sports you play in every year. There was never one sport. You know, we tried them all. So I was like, you know, and we obviously we had there's some. Uh, youth athletic development centers. We used to go to the YMCA, but she did everything from basketball to volleyball to soccer to tennis to surfing. We're in San Diego. I mean, do you believe in San Diego? Like at six thirty in the morning, the kids could meet at the beach and do surfing as their physical education. I'm like, do you realize how good you got it? Like, so <laughs> she kind of turned in the one that she uh, really excelled at and played uh, varsity in, in high school was uh, a goalkeeper in soccer, which was kind of interesting. But uh, but then my wife, I think one, because my wife is a elementary and middle school art teacher. And uh, my daughter has become quite the artist. So she does all kinds of art stuff. Um, but I was, uh, uh, I played guitar in a band when I was in college and I taught my daughter how to play guitar, but she picked up the drums and now she's in a band. They just launched their first album on Spotify called Chalk Talk is the name of their band. And so I, she, you know, my daughter's way cooler than me. Uh, she's she's been very well rounded over there. I think she's going to be into art and music more than more she is in sports. But I think she loves all sports. As we talk right now, she's on the river paddleboarding right now. So I think she'll always have that uh, love of being active and using sports to do that. But I definitely, you know, to me, I wasn't like, hey, you need to play professional sports. I wanted her to do what she loved. But I was like, you don't know what you love unless you try them all. So we exposed her to all of these and she found soccer and it was great for her. She loved it. Mm. How, how do you uh, think of or um, understand for yourself the idea of, of pushing past a limit versus um, that's really not something they're they're interested in or that they're going to fall in love with. So it's kind of that heavy, heavy question for parenting is when, you know, when do you you push them? Because sometimes they just want to walk away. Here's my thing is if you want your kid to be a professional and I I can tell you, listen, I always say anybody can work with a professional athlete. Let me see you make one. Something that I'm very proud of is I think we've made more professional athletes, more professional golfers than anybody in the world here. And I tell the parents that I'm like, listen, no matter what you do, the chance of you motivating them internally is slim to none, right? So if you have to push them and you have to do them, the chance of them becoming professional is, is less than 1%. Hmm. But if they decide they want to do this and it's all driven from internal, then you are just a facilitator and that's where the magic can happen, right? So if they don't love it, if it's not something that they wake up every day saying, hey, take me to the golf course, it's not going to happen as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. So, but what you have to do is you have to try enough sports until they realize what they're passionate about. Like in our junior programs, we have junior programs and we expose kids. They're coming to a junior golf program, but we try and develop an athlete. So they'll be doing like hitting a baseball bat. They'll be throwing footballs. They'll be kicking soccer balls, all these things in the junior golf program. And I can't tell you how many parents we've sat down with and said, listen, I know you're bringing them to our junior golf program, but have you seen her hit a tennis racket? Like, she should go check out tennis because she loves it. She's really good. And we've exposed kids to a lot of sports that they didn't even know about. But when you see the, like when my daughter picked up the drums, I never, she was going in the garage for three, four hours and just go until she got blisters on her hands. And I, I'd never seen her do anything like that before. And, and it was just over a three year period of time. I mean, her skills just went ballistic. And I was like, that's what it looks like when you find a, a passion and you just, I'm like, all right, I'm gonna get you some drums. I'll, so I'll get you a drum coach. I got her lessons. I, I did the parent thing, not a coach. And she drove everything. When you find that with your kids, that's when the magic happens. That's awesome. So uh, segue right a little bit. How do you uh, meet this girl from uh, Little Rock, Arkansas? And uh, <laughs> You want to hear this story? Yeah, that's great. <laughs> this is one of the best stories ever. Right? <laughs> <laughs> what time we got here? Okay, so... Uh, it, let's see, the year was uh, 1993, 94. I think it was 93. I was going to Mardi Gras. I was going to Mardi Gras with 15 fraternity brothers from University of Maryland. <laughs> I, was in, I was in Iowa at chiropractic school. It was a great break, so I flew down to Arkansas. And my brother, uh, who's I've got an 18-month-old brother, older brother, uh, who's on his way to Arkansas tomorrow, um, 
but we decided he was going to come down there with me and all my fraternity brothers. And, and we got, we got down to Little Rock, got down, sorry, got down to New Orleans, go to Mardi Gras. First day in Mardi Gras, we're on Bourbon Street, walking down the middle of Bourbon Street. And let's just say everybody was a little inebriated. And my brother is walking down the middle right next to me. And he hits this girl. And this girl had an ID in her hand. And the ID goes flying up in the air. And it lands on the street. My brother goes, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. And he bends over, picks up the ID, and he looks at it. And he goes, wow, that's kind of funny. He goes, you have my same birthday. We're born on the same day. And he hands it back to the girl. And the girl's like, oh, you say that to all the girls. He's like, no, no, no. And he brings out his wallet. And he shows, he shows uh, this, wo- this woman uh, his ID. And she's like, oh, my God, we do have the same birthday. And she goes, this must be destiny. And she grabbed my brother and started making out with my brother. <laughs> no. Right in the middle of the street. So I'm kind of sitting there. I'm like, what is going on? I look behind my brother and this girl making out. And there's this, this other girl with her head down, with her hand like, like embarrassed. And I look at her and I go, what's up with you? And she's like, I'm so embarrassed. That's my cousin. I go, you think that's embarrassing? I go, that's my brother, right? So this woman I'm talking to is my future wife. So I talk to her and I go, I go so where are you from? She's like, from Little Rock. And within five minutes, my brother and her cousin hate each other. And by the way, those two gave our speeches at our wedding, which is pretty classic. But um, so so we started hanging out there in in Little Rock. I'm sorry, in in Mardi Gras. And my wife was down there with uh, she was uh, down there with her cousin and another friend. And uh, basically, the friend had all their clothes, all their luggage in a car. Well, the friend got upset because. Amy, my wife, and I were talking, and my brother was over there, and this girl leaves them, like ditches them. So they're stranded, her and her cousin are stranded in the middle of New Orleans, in Mardi Gras, first day, where it's hard to find a hotel or anything. And I was like, listen, I go, and it was like three in the morning now, we would hang out the whole night. I go, listen, I know this is crazy. I go, you probably think we're like ax murderers. I go, but I'm down here with 15 fraternity brothers. We have three rooms at a hotel that are adjoined. Uh, if you guys are stranded, if you need anything, you guys can, I'm sure the guys will give you the beds in one of the rooms and we can just all sleep on the floor. And they were like, Oh no, hell no, we're not going to do that. And then it got to like four or five in the morning. And I'm like, and make a long story short, she, uh, she, she ends up coming back to our place. Cousins, we, all the, all the fraternity guys were great. Gave them one of the rooms. And basically I met this girl at Mardi Gras the first day and kind of hung out with her the next two days. I went back to, to Iowa. She went back to Arkansas uh, we had a little long distance relationship for about four or five months in summer. Uh, I had my summer break. I had like a three week break. She got a ticket to Europe. I got a ticket to Europe. We got Eurorail tickets and we spent three weeks in Europe, just going from city to city to city. And four years later we were married. That's awesome. Yeah. Very cool. How did you ask her to marry you? <laughs> uh, kind of funny. I, I, uh, I put a little, little note in her. She was leaving. And I put a little note in her suitcase saying, you know, it, uh, she had to go somewhere and I was going somewhere else. We really didn't want to be part. And I was like, uh, hey, it, if uh, if you come back early, uh, I kind of put a little little surprise there. If you come back early, there might be something in this for you. It goes like a long term proposal if you come back. And that was kind of the the, the hint that she gave back. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Beautiful. So you end you end up in San Diego. How how does that uh, how does that transpire? Then? So when I was in my practice in Washington D.C. for nine years and was working with all kinds of golfers. Ended up having almost three thousand patients from all over the world. But the, that kid Peter Uline that I mentioned that won the U.S. Open, his dad Wally Uline was the CEO of Titleist, and he brought uh, his son Peter to me. His his coach was a guy by the name of Dave Phillips, who's my co-founder at TPI, was coaching Peter. And they brought him in when he was really young, nine years old, and I put him through a whole evaluation, motion capture, and dad was there and was like, this is the coolest thing ever. He goes, I don't know how, but I want Titleist to help support you. He goes, because he could see that if we could make golfers better, make them play longer, it did nothing but help the industry, which would help Titleist. So I kind of became a consultant of Titleist in 2002, and we started talking like, you know, the Yankees have a training staff, Lakers have a training staff, why does Titleist not have one? So he was like, well, give me a proposal. So we, he showed us a facility he had in San Diego. I said, here's how I would change it to be more of a performance institute where you could take care of your players and help them. And after he saw the whole proposal, he said, I love it. He goes, I'll build the entire thing with one caveat. He goes, you and Dave come out here and run this for me. I'll build it. And that was in 2003. We moved out there. It didn't take him long to convince me. 
And uh, 2003, we moved out there. We opened up the Performance Institute uh, January 2004, and the rest is history. That's awesome. Well, I'm going to use that and your your birth date thing on your brother to segue to my little piece that I do. I, I discovered this book a number of years ago called The Day You Were Born, and it basically combines numerology with astrology. And the lady who wrote it, who's an astrologer, I actually interviewed. So you're a Scorpio 2, October 29th. So yeah. Your purpose, and it always gives you a purpose statement. So your purpose is to experience your emotions, allowing the highs and lows to come and go so that you can gain confidence and control in your life without losing the passion. Scorpio 2s struggle between wanting to be alone and wanting to communicate their feelings. Sometimes they are prolific writers and creative artists with a unique approach to life. Fantasy is strong. Scorpio 2s have the power to visualize and manifest their vision in the now. The danger for them is becoming nostalgic about their past. I mean, good psychologists, healers, and physicians. The pain and weakness of others affects them. They are strong and resilient. They have incredible courage and, and the, the kind that can make a difference in the world. Their life is full of drama. They're emotional, creative, and unique. If they come from too much, it can lead to depression and mood swings. If their emotions are blocked, they may struggle with physical handicap or an unusual illness. They need faith in themselves and a higher power. Their attraction to the occult can lead to, to God or to an insane guru. If they stay centered, their power and sense of compassion can be great help to all who know them. Hmm, interesting. <laughs> the the engineers and science guys that i talk to have a harder struggle with listening to that than i would say there's definitely some there's, some of that was very truthful yeah yeah it's an interesting segue for sure yeah. so what is what is your um mission at this point you've done obviously done some really um innovative and moved the rock in in a few different industries uh, career wise and, and career pathway wise. And we started this whole thing off with you talking about some farming that you're doing in Arkansas. Where is your life headed now? What is, what is your next mission in life? Well, I, I don't ever see myself retiring. Let's put it that way. I wouldn't know what to do with myself. I think I'd drive my wife crazy, but, um, I, you know, cause I, I don't really think I work. I love what I do. It's not really work. Um, but so we, we just, you know, I, I took, we took this body swing connection in golf and took it all over the world. You know, we have certified people in 64 countries. We teach in 24 countries. And then the United States Professional Tennis Association, the USPTA, asked me if I could help them with tennis. We launched Racket Fit, this tennis program, about two years ago. And now we just launched On Base University for baseball and softball, doing the same thing. It's very similar. And we got some of the great experts in all those fields. I can see myself doing a couple more sports, right? I almost want like a real sports certification for healthcare. Like if you're a chiropractor or physical therapist right now, they have sports certifications. In my opinion, I think they're well below average, the, the education they get. And I feel like what we're building would be a much more appropriate education. So I would love to almost create a, a real sports certification for, for a medical or fitness provider. Um, We've been having some conversations with groups like U.S. Lacrosse, and we have some stuff going on with football and soccer. And I, so I, I could see a couple of those workshops coming out. Um, I think that uh, I've been traveling a lot, somewhere between 25 and 40 weeks a year for almost 15 years now. So I can see some of my travel starting to come down a little bit. I got so many great instructors and people that um, that work with us that. Uh, can hold that forward. So I, I can see myself creating more. I have written a lot of books. Like when you said, writing books, you know, we have almost 200 page manuals in every one of my classes. And I've, I've we have 11 classes for TPI. We have two for on base and one for racket bit. So I've written 14 books, believe it or not. I'm always doing that. I'm always sitting down tinkering and trying to develop new things there. I could see myself writing a couple books that are to the public versus the ones we do. I, I definitely will write a book at some point. Um, and then, uh, I, I just see myself continuing doing what I'm doing. We have a couple, you mentioned the youth thing you were talking to Dave Epstein about. I have a, an app that we developed for the Mexican football federation about it helps with physical education and helping kids who want to get into soccer, do it more like from an athletic standpoint, not just early specialized. I could see us taking that all over the, over the world in different sports as well, but you can see I'm not slowing down anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> for when I die, right? We can, we can slow down then. That's awesome. What, what have you, you've, you mentioned traveling a lot. What have you learned about humanity in traveling to 24 different countries in the world? 
So we, we teach in 24 countries, but I've been to almost 60 countries. And I can tell you right now, uh, people are people. You know, I think if you listen to the news and you don't travel, you, you, you believe all this crazy stuff. But when you're there and you meet like the people in China are some of the greatest people in the world. You know, I've been to Russia and I've been to Korea and I've been to uh, all kinds of places in Africa. Most people just are like are like your neighbor and uh, they're, they, they, they love talking and meeting new people. Uh, I love traveling. My daughter has been on five continents. You know, I, I'm like, it makes you so you're not prejudiced. You don't believe all the stuff you hear. You kind of, uh, one of my favorite times is I go to Beijing a lot. And there's a hotel I stay at that has a series of channels. And it's, it has CNN. It has Fox. It has uh, Al Jazeera, Russia Today, CCTV, which is the China one, the BBC, and one more that I'm forgetting, but it, like when a story comes out, I love flipping between the channels because it's here on several different planets, right? And it really makes you realize that, you know, if you really want to know what's going on, you should travel. Go out there, see the world. You only live once and uh, you're going to be surprised what you see. And I think it makes you not only appreciate home too, because, you, you know, there's things that you love about your home, but it helps you understand what other people are dealing with. And, you know, I've got friends all over the world, which is pretty cool. You... Um you obviously are very passionate. You you can hear the passion, and I was was struck when I've heard you speak um, at conferences and the passion that you found. What would be your advice to somebody younger to um, resonate and connect with their passion and understand it when they're younger, so they can live that kind of life? You said it right there. You said it's Pat. I always tell people, I'm like, I'm a lot of kids that come up to me and ask me, like, can I mentor you or? Can you help me figure out what I'm, I'm like? I can't help you figure out what makes you passionate, but you need to figure that out. And if there's something that you really love, I think a lot of people don't think that they can make a job out of it. I'm like, listen, I love golf. You know, people are like, how do you make a golf out of it? How do you make that a business? I'm like, well, I became a chiropractor and I said, I love golf. So I'm going to try and be a golf chiropractor. Like, and if it doesn't work, who cares? Just try. What if it works? What if you can combine your passion with your work? Then if you're not working anymore. And I'm like, if you want to, if you want to win and be successful, there's no overnight success. It's 20 years of hard work, but if it's not work, then it's fun, a fun 20 years, right? So mm-hmm. take whatever you're passionate about and try your hardest to figure out how to turn a business out of that passion. Because then again, I think you'll, someone's going to have to tell you to go home, not like, oh, I can't believe I go to work, right? That, that's, that's when you know you found the right thing. That's awesome. I think that's a great way to finish. Um, I appreciate the, the time you spent with me today. And uh, I promise I won't drive any tractors next time you call me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say there's a thread of connection to the John Deere tournament you were talking about. Before, so you had to bring it around in some kind of circle, I'm sure. <laughs> well, hey, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you too. We'll, we'll be in touch. Thanks okay. again. Okay. Take care. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today, and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome.